Ben, episode 35, stoked to be here. Post episode today, like to kick off by saying if you're tuning in and you're one of the original listeners of Dark Mode, we really appreciate your time. And please support us by leaving a rating or hitting that subscribe button, no matter what platform you're on. We really appreciate you all tuning in. Absolutely. It does wonders for the show, not just for our own benefit to see that people enjoy it, but also for exposure so that the community grows and uh, we all form a part of a larger community, which is the intent of the show. So as Gabe mentioned, hit like, hit subscribe, give us a comment, give us a rating, and we will forever appreciate you. Get amongst it. Love it. So today we've got a few things to talk about, Ben. I'm excited because we've done a heap of recordings recently. We're really set up proactively for the year ahead in 2023, which is a really energizing feeling. And every fifth episode, we're getting together to do a host episode between you and I without a guest. So lots always to talk about, many rabbit holes to go down as always. But a few key ones immediately for me jumping out, chat GPT, it's going to be a raft of things to talk through there, disinformation warfare, common theme on a lot of previous episodes. And I would even say a concurrent undertone to dark mode itself. Threat Intel, we've had some amazing conversations around that. World Economic Forum in Davos kicked off in the last week. Lots of recaps, cybersecurity and major discussion there. A lot of modernization discussions in our current Australian digital economy, data breaches, looking at reforms and the rest. And then we'll probably finish and wrap up with existential threats to humanity or maybe unprecedented opportunities for humanity. It depends how we feel at the end of dark mode. Who knows? I I am sweating already (laughs) just running through the agenda. (laughs) Awesome. Well, let's start with ChatGPT. So this just exploded in the last month and a half, particularly over the break. But the age-old argument, will new advanced technologies pose new risks? I mean, immediately in the cyber community, we think, yeah, of course they will, because bad actors always look to leverage technologies for their use. And even just recently, we saw the rise of polymorphic malware, which you shared with me so astutely in the last day. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about how that came about? How did you find that, by the way? Where where did that come from? This is, um, I use a a news aggregator and I think I've told you about it before, but for anyone listening that wants to jump on board, it's newsnow.co.uk. And then from there, you can select security under technology and it aggregates the news across the world, essentially for Anything related to cybersecurity and technology more broadly, I use it for the technology tab as well. And in there, it is, it's nation-driven. So if it, the news article generated from Australia, it's going to Australian flag, Canada, Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really great source of news. But as we've learned in some episodes recently, you need to challenge where you get your news outlets or your news from because the outlets have their own bias. So that for me is just a good way to consume a lot of different bias, potentially around the same story potentially not around the same story. There it is right there. I appreciate you. So from Quick here demo. on the left, yeah, on the left <laughs> hand, there it is technology. If you just hit technology down there and then on the left hand side is cybersecurity. Nice, Ben. Good so aggregation. Here, yeah. yeah, it's an aggregate. And as you can see overnight, there's been a lot of US typically. So throughout the day, you'll see a lot more populate based on time zones, but it's a really cool, there's a lot of US coming out in the last couple of hours there. Yeah, pretty broad topics as well. I just saw sassy conversations, cyber bunker. Yeah. WhatsApp hit. Yeah, like really. That's really... a cool story there. North Carolina bans TikTok. So you can see there that so we've talked about TikTok a lot in the last episodes as well. North Carolina have just released uh, a new law stating that um, they're going to ban it for that state. So interesting. Very cool. Yeah, really interesting. 
We'll link I digress in the show notes though. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's where I find most of my stories that, that I then rabbit hole into finding other sources to confirm whether that was legit or not. And, uh, and the story we're talking to was released a couple of days ago. Now we're recording on the 21st of January. This will be a little bit later when we release, but, um, the, the story is that chat GPT, it's just created its first or the first polymorphic malware. Now. To break down polymorphic malware, polymorphic in computing terms is a code that uses a polymorphic engine um, that, that mutates or changes while keeping the original algorithm or malware, malicious software intact. So anytime the malware is deployed or the code is generated on the victim machine, uh, it changes itself to evade security technologies, but the function of the code remains the same. We've seen this in a few other malwares before. So it's not a new concept, but what is new is that AI has generated a form of polymorphic malware, which is, is, uh, is scary in itself. So this was released by the researchers at CyberArk. And according to their research, the, the polymorphic malware, malware that was generated by ChatGPT, remembering that we're in GPT cycle three, using 750 gig worth of compute processing power. It is easily, it is able to easily evade security products and make mitigation cumbersome with very little effort or investment by the adversary, quote unquote. So that's quite a scary, uh, change of tack for what people have been using chat GPT for in the recent days. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder as well, what sort of mitigations we can put in place to combat against that. If it's a bit more evasive to typical technologies or security protocols, then seems like it's pretty daunting as an advancement for the bad actors. Agree, Gabe. It's, uh, it's wild that with chat GPT-3, uh, as I mentioned in, in an episode just recently, I gave a breakdown of what GPT is, essentially generative pre-training transformer and the third iteration of that. What's wild is that it's still offline and it's offline so that it can be fed a, a subset of data to learn from. And at the moment, it's got 175 billion parameters. So it's got the ability to process billions of words in a single second. And that's why it's offline so that the compute processing power is the limitation there. If it was online, it would have to be able to process trillions of words and beyond trillions in a single second. It's just not capable of that at the time. But the next generation or the next evolution of GPT and GPT-4, which we're excited to see released in hopefully the coming months, will be, I think it's over 400% of what is currently being used for the processing power with GPT-3. So will that change what we're seeing and will it provide more ability for bad actors to leverage its capability for more things like polymorphic malware? That's some questions that I've got. Surely OpenAI and the ecosystem of partners around the technology will put in those guardrails and safeguard against some of the malicious uses. And I just wonder on the polymorphic malware, mm. gosh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Don't say that a few times fast. I'm surprised I can say that without blinking. Yeah. <laughs> what the sort of barriers to entry, like how available it is in the wrong hands. We know that the cost of the barriers to entry for cyber criminals is pretty low and it's getting lower and lower as we speak. But for advancing technologies like this, just how easy it is for bad actors to get their hands on it's a well, time will tell, but I'm sure we'll be able to safeguard against it in the future and put those guardrails in place too. Yeah, absolutely. There's another one that, that um, with, with that in mind, and we talk about the technology megatrends quite a bit here on the podcast, is that ChatGPT3 is currently being used for, and I've got personal stories with friends doing this, and uh, their names shall remain anonymous, but they're using it to write, and I, I know there's a lot of people doing this as a test, but there are a few people using it to to submit papers, to submit assignments for studies 
And it's a scary concept in that we're potentially getting people qualified in subjects that they have leveraged GPT or AI to generate the returns for, which is a scary concept in itself because then they're unqualified in the realm of whatever their chosen field of study is with a lack of knowledge based on AI generation of their reports. Crazy. It's wild. Wild. More to come on chat GPT. Wish I had that at school. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to reform the education system probably sooner than we imagined and potentially even a shift that is a long time coming anyways, Ben. Absolutely. I think at the moment with chat GPT-3, I could rabbit hole this for a while. I've been rabbit holing it for the last week, but I think at the moment, what it doesn't understand is human-like natural language. We talk about accuracy and fluency of the way it writes. I think that will be the determining factor in evolutions to come on whether they can amend that to make it more fluent, more accurate. And will the next iteration of AI be able to understand creativity, powers that don't exist? Like we look at, um, you know, some of the, you know, you believe in something beyond what is in the physical realm. AI at the moment can't provide information that is accurate to impact a report that's written by itself currently. Yeah, right. Well, let's, let's come back together again on episode 45 and see how far it's come since the probably three months in between yeah. at that time. Yeah. Let's switch tack slightly, Ben, and go into disinformation warfare. So for me, three different adversarial businesses in society, mm -hmm. one being military, our heritage, another being law enforcement, and then the third being cybersecurity. Really interesting point from a few episodes back out of John Kindervag's episode, which was really, really insightful. But I thought the disinformation undertone is really prominent at the moment, given all the geopolitical tensions, what's actually happening economically, the raft of disinformation online uh, through social media and the like. And we've spoken pretty frequently, and I would say you and I both speak very publicly about thinking critically and really evangelize how to look at the information sources, the common theme as well, and then just to be aware of things that you see online, particularly given the 24 by 7 nature of the always on by the thumbs, just how much fake news there can be out there. Don't think that's too surprising to anyone, but it's obviously a lot more concerning with the younger generations coming through the ranks. And we've got our perspective on the digital natives now, literally growing up with the devices in hand and potentially not going back to those credible and reputable sources as often as what we're used to being trained as, especially as ex-military people. But I thought that some of the information that we've been speaking about and championing around disinformation warfare, well, maybe perhaps just the history behind information warfare, and again, coming out of one of those adversarial businesses in the military, how that's been around for, for eons. And then now we're seeing it really proliferate in cyberspace in the sense of more competitive or competitive arenas as it relates to disinformation warfare. I really enjoyed the preamble offline just before hitting record though, and I would love you to cast all of our minds back as to where disinformation warfare stems from. So please hit, hit us, hit us with the history. <laughs> so full context, I tend to say things and then don't remember what I said. It's just a, I don't know if it's a superpower or not, but I'll give it a crack. So essentially what interests me about disinformation is the history behind it, as Gabe mentions, and we know that information warfare, as you mentioned, has been around for eons, you know, dating back to, I would say, probably the Egyptians, ancient Egypt, but quite documented in ancient Greece. 
And from there, it's just evolved over time. And now we have the term disinformation and disinformation warfare. So the disinformation word is prefixed by the Latin term dis on information. And that then in turn means the reversal or removal of information. So disinformation by definition is a reversal or removal of information for one's gain. And it's essentially a loan trans translation from a Russian term, which I have no idea how to pronounce, but I'll give it a crack. It's desinformatia. Hey. Um, yeah. And some of our Russian friends are laughing at me right now. It probably sounds a bit Irish, but really it was, it was in 1950s, uh, Soviet Russia leveraged the term desinformatia and they used it for what is called the black war essentially. And they used it to provide disinformation campaigns in Soviet Russia to stop the, the knowledge from outside of Soviet Russia on some public opinion and some changes that were occurring in the, in the racial space, essentially. And they used it to contain the information that was being broadcast into Soviet Russia. So that was really the, the first time disinformation warfare was coined and it was leveraged as a weaponized capability internally to a nation state. So now we've got the proliferation of disinformation at scale, leveraging, you know, weapons of mass disinformation. Uh, and I don't know about you, but do we class that as social media platforms, potentially a whole bunch of other things, but it even dates back further. If you want to do more research, I'll put some notes in the, in the show notes here, etymology and the early usage of etymology. I'm all right, all right, I'm all right. big words at the moment. Bring it back. <laughs> about to faint with all these big words I've said. You're nailing it, Ben. Look at this. This is just like, you're like the encyclopedia of, of cyber at the moment. This is awesome. We don't even need to publish one on the dark mode website. We can just come to Ben Sullivan. I also find like information warfare. Do you remember reading about that and learning about it in the army as well? Yeah. Like the gray zone and, you know, modern conflict operations. And of course, now we see that play out the Russia-Ukraine conflict, unfortunately. I mm. find it really fascinating, some of the connections that we have and I'm really pumped as well in a future episode soon to come, we'll be hosting John Davis, who's one of the vice presidents at Palo Alto Network for Public Sector. And he was almost like the OG of information warfare, taking up the assignment as one of the first leaders in that space at the US Department of Defense. Got close ties into Marcus Thompson, who was Australia's first head of information warfare. Susan Coyle just took up that command, was just moved into Commander 6th Brigade in Australia as well. He's also in the information warfare space. So those three people looking to get onto a dark mode episode in the future too. So lots of undercurrents there. Of course, more military heritage, but as it relates into the online world, I think disinformation, misinformation, how it's being used in information warfare in the gray zone is all very, very topical at the moment. So what's your, what it, what's the crystal ball from you, Ben, in terms of where information warfare will go? Do you think it's on, on the slow? Do you think it's on the rise? Do you think it's a concern? Do you think it's an existential threat to humanity? How do you feel about it? It's to, to use the words of one of the, the community, it's an ex existential threat to humanity that we're not equipped to deal with. And you know who you are, but I think that was a great way to describe where we are with disinformation. But just quickly, a comment. You mentioned Susan Coyle. You mentioned some other great leaders in the, the ADF or the Australian Defence Force. All uh, signals caught, Gabe. Just wondering if that's, if that's a trend that maybe Never. should have been a sig. Never heard of her. <laughs> But is it a concern? Absolutely. It's a concern. Like even for me, who is, you know, somewhat educated in the practice of disinformation, I find it challenging to understand whether the, the, the data that I'm consuming is biased by design or 
you know, whether it's a neutral tone, it's hard to get information that is credible and to not have to worry about whether this is disinformation, it's a campaign, et cetera, et cetera. So is it a, is it a concern? Absolutely. It's a concern. Is it on the rise? Absolutely. It is. But with, with some great tools that are being created at the moment, hopefully throughout the next generation or in years to come, we have some tools in place to weaponize, but we can essentially understand what has been weaponized and what is there for us to consume at a neutral state. Yeah. And just on the biases you mentioned, Ben, it's human nature, the cognitive biases. So that's translating, of course, into the online realm. Tidbit pro tip from Charity Right recently, especially absorbing content from news sources and media outlets. I really enjoyed her pro tip on the media bias chart. And I think that's a really key source for triangulating even if you are using a news aggregator or looking at sources of information to take a look at that. But of course, it doesn't necessarily combat against um, very intentional disinformation proliferated by things like actors and bots online, but it is an element to almost fact-checking and just being aware of the undertones of biases as they could relate to some of those narratives online, which I thought was, was a really great point. Absolutely. I'm just going to share a screen. I think that's an important one to look at is, uh, is this piece here, which is the map that charity, let me get this up, that charity shared with us. And it's, it's a really great way to understand if you can see my cursor here across the top, what part of the bias or the world's bias, some of these news outlets form. Now it's very Americanized. I have had a bit of a play with it. There is some Australian media outlets that are in here, like the ABC. But at the moment, it's it's very Americanized. So if you do consume your news from the American websites, this is a great resource for you to be able to see and understand what level of bias it has. We'll link that in the show notes as well. Totally. Threat Intel in the industry. I really enjoyed. How good was Sam oh, McKay? So good. It was great. He's so good. Really stoked to see him moving up into an acting CISO role for a government entity here in Australia. Very, very cool. He had some really awesome insights into threat modeling. I think the threat intel sharing is really on the rise. And interestingly enough, coming out of some of the leadership in Unit 42 at Palo Alto Networks, I found it really interesting to note that, of course, a lot of the threat intel sharing historically in this region has been conducted through some of the intelligence agencies between the Five Eyes Alliance, more of that public sector type perspective. The What's happening at the moment is there's a lot of private threat intelligence aggregation happening from people that maybe former defense and former intel and the like, but it's really interesting to see those private public alliances come to life now. And I think that's really, really critical in solving some of the biggest issues in cybercrime and cybersecurity related topics. We saw even, and I'm sort of jumping the gun here, talking about the World Economic Forum that just transpired in the last week in January 23. But as it relates to threat intel sharing and the public-private partnerships, in particular, the Project Atlas Alliance in that ecosystem from the Interpol leader and talking about combating cybercrime is requiring that true holistic partnership between those type of sectors. So I think it's more relevant than ever today. It was really cool to hear the insights from Sam, a former friend, Duncherin graduate, peer of mine, and just seeing how he's actually bringing that cybersecurity leadership and also champion that message around threat intel and, and those partnerships too. So really keen to see how that also transpires in the future. I found that really interesting in my day role at Dragos. We have a, a dedicated OT threat intelligence feed, and it's obviously for private and public sector, but the private sector seems to pick it up and run with it quite quickly. We've also got another platform 
this isn't a product pitch. This is just talking to the subject. However, it's a, it's a threat intelligence sharing that's completely anonymized for the consumers of that. But essentially what it does is um, it's, it allows for the threat sharing across verticals so that the energy sector, for instance, if the threat in one organization, they could share some of the details completely anonymized across to the rest of the verticals so that they can then create a playbook that is prepared for a known threat in that vertical. So there is some threat sharing capabilities that are out there for any decision makers and organizational leaders that are listening that you can be part of that will allow for a more broader spectrum understanding of what threats are out there and the sharing capabilities of that between like-minded uh, and, and like-organized um, organizations. Mm, nice. And just on the alliances too, I think what was really poignant at Davos was the call for a global response to mm. a global problem. And yeah, as, as we know, security measures and the threats out there aren't just specific to one region. It is going to take a global response to combat the rising threats. How did you find Davos, Ben? Any highlights for you? If we, if we switch tacked into, into World Economic Forum? How did you find some of the content coming out of out of the annual event last week? Look, I, I enjoy the the World Economic Forum. I think the annual uh, summit is is great. It's my first year where I've really immersed myself in some of the conversations. So, with that in mind, I was like a kid in a candy shop, pivoting between some of the conversations that were happening. I really enjoyed some of the individual conversations that happened. I liked the Palo Alto leadership conversation there about the future of. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, some of the critical infrastructure stuff was quite interesting too, but really, I just think it's great that there are conversations happening that is not just from technology leaders, but we've actually got state leaders, world leaders, uh, coming together to discuss the problem, to create that global response to things that are happening beyond the control of a single entity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, what about yourself? Gosh, I mean, if we didn't read enough reports and predictions and 2023, what's going to happen in the year ahead in the first two weeks of January. Certainly, we've got a couple more to get through, but I did find the cybersecurity outlook for 2023 really interesting from the World Economic Forum. And interestingly, we will have someone from the Cybersecurity Center at World Economic Forum join us on the Dark Mode episode, which is really exciting. It's just really cool that we get access to world leaders, really insightful people, global thought leaders, you know, people working in the industry people in our community to come and join the conversation. And I think, as you mentioned, Ben, it's definitely about building the community and sharing that sort of information. I just find it amazing that, uh, that, that we have the platform now to be able to just reach out to these people and they want to come and share their story or share their capabilities for the dark mode community. I think there's a power in that and, and being able to you know, just engage with our listeners that, that love to hear the topics and want to hear more. And we're starting to get those, those really great guests that are coming and sharing global perspectives. Yeah. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. You're just as <laughs> energized, surely. I mean, we yeah. talk about this like every second day, the frequency of being able to get together. I mean, we've um, gone really, we've really gotten a, an amazing group of episodes together, but like every time I get off a dark mode episode recording, I'm just like, well, I think we FaceTime each other every time. It's just like, yep. how good was that? <laughs> yeah. They've been amazing. Yeah. We haven't had an episode where we haven't felt energized as a result of it. So I hope that the community sees that as well and feels our energy is as energized by listening to some of the, the commentary that we have in the podcast. Yeah. I think you're a great co-host, Ben. So Likewise. Half, half the audience is tuning in just to listen to your antics, I reckon. 
Well, I think the other half is listening to, <laughs> to your smarts and your brain power and some of the concepts that you bring to life. I'm just the comedic relief. <laughs> That's a great duo. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I really enjoy conversing as well and making personal connections with the guests. Mm. It's just awesome. And then even the example with Charity Wright and even Dan Brahmi recently, when they actually come and visit Australia, it's like so awesome to catch up with them, whether it's at the Cyber Forum or if it's like a personal breakfast or dinner or lunch event. It's just really cool to actually bring, again, it's that community focus that comes with dark mode and even some of the plans and the visions that we have for this long term, you know, talking about the veterans and cyber staff, looking at tidbits and interactive graphs and all sorts of stuff online that people can use just to help them help better equip conversations in the day. We've had lots of people even recently reach out to us and say, I'm just started my career in cyber and I use dark mode as the outlet to learn what's happening. I think that's a really remarkable comment about the value of dark mode. It's really cool. The quote that you mentioned just before about, again, one of the audience OGs with the existential threat around disinformation. I had an email this week on my work email from someone in the industry reaching out and saying that episode was really insightful. Uh, Here's my suggestion on a book and forward me a reference of a blog newsletter that they plug into which has all the common themes and it's just really really cool when you bring a lot of that community to life and it's it's again it's a really energizing part to all the endeavors that we're embarking upon and I really think that 2023 is going to be a real standout year for dark mode which is cool lots of conversations to come and as well by that same token if for the listeners out there too if you do have someone that you find really insightful please reach out directly to Ben and I and give us the recommendation because we can reach out to them really easily and get a conversation set up. And the more the merrier, I think. Absolutely. Hey, selfishly too, for the audience, I know that we've got a lot of US listeners too. I will be in the US in Atlanta, Georgia at the end of February to early March. So if you do want to catch up for your choice of poison or a coffee or a walk or something, just to reach out, I'd love to catch up with some of our US community as well. Oh, good. Love that. We'll have to start doing a few dark mode meetups, Ben. We, I was thinking we, we about, should. yeah, absolutely. I mean, even it's a few months off, but we'll hit the one year anniversary in no time. That could be a little special plan for us to do a meetup or some sort of online interactive, get everyone on, invite a few guests onto like a live recording or something. Mexico trip. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> oh dear. Where shall we go next? Do you want to talk about modernizing our digital economy? The final I was going to point. ask you about that, Gabe. I think that's something that you're pretty passionate about is the conversation around modernizing our digital economy, whether that's privacy, whether that's cyber, whether that's, you know, as an umbrella term, whether that's data or identity or all the other facets that, that sit underneath that. What is your thoughts on where we are in our modern digital economy using the italics there, but where are we now and where do you see in the coming years that we will evolve to? Yeah, it's really topical. I love that you've just returned serve that over to me, Ben. So thanks 100%. for that. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Absorbing a lot of the AFR content. And there was a really interesting article that came out on the 19th of Jan around modernizing the digital economy. And I thought that was really important because even some of the big data breaches that we've seen recently and that will continue to happen inevitably until reform is made, but just even looking at reforming the Privacy Act, for example, that was around in 1988. I think that's time for it to be updated with the modern times. There's an inordinate amount of data that is collected unnecessarily, I would say, and even just purging things like personal data 
that is collected historically or might not necessarily be a current customer for that organization. All of those sort of things, I definitely see a requirement for that happening, which is almost in this privacy catch-up mode. So some of those law reforms happening and what we'll see, I think we'll start to see them increase. And an example is we recently in the last couple of months saw an increase in fines for breaches of, of PII, of personal information, going from a maximum of about 2 mil, I think it was like 2.2 mil or something like that, to a maximum of 50 mil now. So you can see things are already starting to happen. Tide is starting to change. And I do believe that we'll see, start to see a lot more of that happening in the Australian digital economy. Not only that, there's a whole bunch of things happening in terms of tackling cyber breaches. You know, the Minister for Cybersecurity, Claire O'Neill, has put together a task force locally, not only the countering ransomware initiative that we're involved in internationally, but we're looking at reforming our and developing a really comprehensive cybersecurity strategy in Australia, which is interestingly being led by former Telstra chief, Andy Penn, with a working group of industry leaders. So I think a lot of all of those things will start to actually help us combat against cyber criminals and look at that data collection, look at the strategies to put in place and the like, particularly for organizations. On the consumer side as well, scams are doubling. Like I'm preparing a talk at the moment for the Australian Computer Society on the 1st of Feb. And when I gave a similar keynote about a year ago, I was talking about some consumer scams, but it was more flubot related. Some of the text message links people were getting through postal deliveries. And now the recent examples are the WhatsApp hi mums or the Facebook pay ID scams. So you can see things like the COVID-19 lockdown really exacerbated the use of scams on social media apps. But we see new sort of honeypots being created for the fraudsters arising every few months. And there's um, a red stat which I've got in the upcoming talk that um, in the last two years, the scams have increased by 600%. So don't think scams are slowing down, though we are looking at more reforms. But again, this talks to even some of the things we've been speaking about later, lately, which is really making sure we're aware of that. And the innocent, hey, mum, my number's changed on WhatsApp to get that initial hook has certainly become something that people are a lot more skeptical of now because we started socializing it, which I think is a positive thing. I had to educate my parents on that, not mainly my parents, but my brothers and my sister-in-laws and more broadly, my extended family on those campaigns. If yeah. mum or dad yep. messages and said, hey, I've just changed my number or I'm in a pickle, I need $50 to get out of the car park because again, it's time sensitivity. It puts time pressure based on the return. It's a small value to get you hooked in. These types of things are on the rise. And there was one released the other day, and I've just got a message this morning from someone actually that has fallen for it. Essentially, it's an email that I'll try and find the picture of it here. It's an email that looks like a legitimate MyGov email. I'm not sure if that'll uh, work at the top there. Oh, it yeah. Says, a MyGov looks... email there. It looks legit. Yeah. If you drop down, obviously, it's a fake email, but it essentially says, Dear customer, you've got a refund sitting in your account from mygov.gov.au to the value of $688.64. You need to log in and click the fund here. And then it captures your MyGov data, which is, as we know, digital birth certificates. It is, um, you know, whatever else sitting in there. It's also got your account details attributed to it for refunds. So they can see that. So it's quite a, an intricate scam that is going around at the moment too. Sorry yeah. to interrupt your tech talk. No, for sure. It's good to bring up those recent examples because as soon as, the quicker we can get on the front foot to give the example, the more that 
we can get people ready to not click the link, go to the source, think critically about it for sure. I think the other thing too is like talking about cyber resilience, having read in the last week in preparation for the ACS talk about a survey in 2021 found that nine out of 10 Australians have serious privacy concerns about the data collection or the sharing or the use of their personal data by businesses to that earlier point. And so that basically means that there's a deep distrust that consumers and, and people have with businesses and governments about protecting their information and the integrity of the data. So I think that there's a few different factors that contribute to our own erosion in confidence as we live and breathe and work within cyberspace. And that certainly is one of them. Like we expect a lot more from industry and government in data privacy and protection. So I certainly welcome the reforms, the new strategies, conversations every day about data protection, PII collection and the like. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I was holding the extended mute button there because my <laughs> dog's just decided to interject himself to someone at the door. Um, no, I totally agree. I think I'm excited for your talk at the ACS. I think it's very topical and I think more people, I don't think, I know more people in the community outside of cybersecurity need to understand the risk and the evolution of what is coming in terms of scams. So it's very topical and I'm excited for that. In terms of the modernization of our digital economy, do you think we're headed the right way? And the reason I ask that question is we talk about open banking, we talk about digital currencies. I think it's Westpac or NAB have just released mm. their first digital coin to try and combat cryptocurrency. Um, is that, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts around that? And, and are we headed in the right direction? That's probably on a whole nother topic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. I reckon it is another topic, Ben. We should forecast that for episode 40. Absolutely. But to answer your question directly, yes, I do think modernizing the digital economy, we are headed in the right way. The re announcement of the stable coin from, I believe it was NAB. Can we quickly fact check that? But fact checking. <laughs> certainly, I think that's a big indicator to say that, you know, we are modernizing. The, the digital sphere is evolving rapidly and you're seeing a lot of key innovators actually look to bridge the gap into historical ways of doing things and challenging that status quo, looking at those first principles or those terms we're really familiar with and actually projecting forward into the future and actually leading the way. So I certainly think we're headed in the right direction. It's good to see that sort of stuff. Really interesting on the digital currencies and the cryptocurrencies and the like. Big shout out to Andy Greenberg released Traces in the Dark, which was the global hunt for cybercrime and the cybercriminals using crypto. He will be on an episode of Dark Mode as well. But that whole realm of cryptocurrency being untraceable in the early days, being debunked, and of course, cryptocurrency became traceable, and that's hence why we saw things like the Silk Road takedown, Welcome to Video takedown. We saw law enforcement partnering with innovative technologies like Chainalysis to actually combat, combat and trace the use of digital currencies, which were supposed to be completely encrypted and, and unrecognizable. Thankfully, to combat that sort of malicious activity and th those sort of atroc atrocities to humanity, it's good to be able to trace that and provide that capability to law enforcement and combat those sort of risks online. But I certainly think as we advance and we better regulate and we better put in those safeguards and we use technology for good and to advance humanity, I'm pretty excited about what we'll see unfolding in the next decade and certainly a big, big topic of discussion that I'd love to rabbit hole a lot further with you, Ben. Likewise, um, 
in my head right then there was fireworks going off, but I just to fact check, it was the National Australia Bank with stablecoin released yesterday, or it has been announced, it hasn't been released. And Australian, Australian New Zealand Bank, the ANZ Bank minted its own coin dubbed a dollar DC. I think that's an ACDC reference last year. So there is change occurring in a, in a, a vertical that has been restrictive or counterintuitive to change since its inception when hundreds of years ago. Yeah. I mean, time will tell, right? Like very keen to follow footsteps there and see where those digital transactions go. Yeah. Very cool. I think we've covered a lot in this episode, Gabe. I, I have more rabbit holes that I want to divulge into. I'm taking notes on my rabbit hole screen here. Yeah. We've got a host of bookmarks and new episodes, I think, that have just spun out of this Notion dashboard for us. So stay <laughs> tuned for that. Any other final points, Ben? Recaps? Excited for the future? What else? That's All it. of the above. For me, it's you just, I just want to recap the start of the episode. Please go in and like and subscribe and chuck a review in there because it really helps the, the podcast as we grow and evolve who we are as Dark Mode and the guests that we're trying to bring onto this show. So we really appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more exciting guests over the course of the next forever. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Ben. Never a chore. No one's ever said that to me, so I appreciate that. <laughs> Happy days. Episode 35. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Gabe.